Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm uh, John Zipper, the Vice President of Media and Editorial at the Commonwealth Club, and Michelle's co-host for this program. Today we're talking with our special guest, author Leslie Absher. Today's program is part of our Good Lit series, which is underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We're continuing to, do, to produce hundreds of programs a year, most of them without me tripping over my words in them. And you can find all of our past events, including audio and video, and all of our upcoming programs at commonwealthclub.org. And now, let me introduce Michelle Miao. She's the host and the producer of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. John, thank you so much. And by the way, it's A-OK. I know that in the last 24 hours, you know, blame it on the weather. Yesterday was rainy, today is sunny. And so that that sure will do it to you and, and uh, probably do a little bit of the stumbling. Let me introduce to you all of you who are joining us. And by the way, thank you to all of you for joining us this afternoon. But let me introduce to you our speaker today. Leslie Absher is a journalist and personal essay writer. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, Salon, Greek Reporter, and San Francisco Magazine. Her memoir, Spy Daughter, Queer Girl, is about growing up with a spy and the cost of keeping secrets. She received a master's in education from Harvard, taught GED to high school dropouts, and currently teaches study skills and writing to middle school and high school students. She lives in Oakland with her comic book writer and artist wife. Leslie, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I, too, became compulsive <laughs> and consumed your book. Thank you so much for writing your story. I, I had the, that same quest where I wanted to find out just exactly who your dad was, this spy. And also, I wanted to find out if you end up with Susan. And so thank goodness you, you know, include that all in your book. But why don't we start with Greece in 1966? I wondered why, you know, you chose Greece to become the uh, the central or focal point uh, in your investigation of your dad. Tell us about Greece. Yes, wonderful. Um, you know, <clears throat> Greece was really my first home. Um, I was born in in Miami, Florida, but when I was a baby in 1966, my father my father was transferred to Greece, and it was his first uh, field assignment with the CIA, um, and it was really the first place I have any memories. And so we lived there until I was five and a half. Um, I had um, the privilege of a, of a nanny when I was living there, um, a young Greek woman who spoke Greek to me, who I, I learned Greek. Um, and, you know, it was my first, they were my first memories. It was a time when, that I remember my family being whole and, um, and, and, in a place of lovingness and everything just felt warm and safe to me there. Um, and somehow the culture just sort of imprinted itself onto me um, and rooted itself in me. And it was the warmth of Greek people. It was, you know, it was the climate. It was the openness, the hospitality of Greece. It was the beauty Um and I think it was the language because the language is complicated and it's very specific. And Greece just got its hooks in me, really, and um, and never left. And so um, it seemed to me like it was one of my first homes and, and, and a place that mattered so much to me. And and that's really why um, 
my father's work there became so important to me. It wasn't just, oh, a place I lived when I was a kid or that nice, interesting, exotic place that my dad's job took us to. And then we left and, you know, then I became an American. It wasn't like that for me. It was, it mattered. It was part of me. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of Intel kids or foreign service kids. Some of those places really do matter. And so it started to kind of lead me. So I think a lot of people these days don't know, maybe never even were, were taught, what happened in Greece from 1967 to 1974. So kind of if you would, because this is obviously such a crucial part of, of your story, um, tell us what was going on in Greece, the, the role played by the colonels, the, the king, and, and obviously what happened to the people during that time. Yes. So, I mean, um, Greece in the late 60s was really seen as sort of a line in the sand by um, by the U.S. and U.S. Uh, foreign interests. Um, you know, that had to be a, a, a stronghold against the, you know, infiltration of communists, of communist infiltration from the Soviet Union. Um, Greece is, you know, it's a part of Europe. It's sort of Eastern Europe. It was seen as a crucial place. Um, and really, since the 50s, since um, the Truman Doctrine in 1947, Greece was um, was shorn up and was built up as uh, an important place. The CIA had a huge and very developed um, station in Athens. Um, the Greek military and the you know the CIA station in Athens, the United States worked very closely together for decades. And so when the 60s are rolling out, rolling along and um, the Cold War is really heating up, um, you know, more attention and more focus, you know, uh, landed in Greece for the United States. And um, in the very late 60s, um, the Greek parliament sort of um, hit this place of paralysis. Um, there were some leaders who were seen by the sort of conservative elements in the Greek society as, as, as too communist, too left-leaning. Um, and so when there was a, sort of an opportunity, um, the Greek military seized it and rolled its tanks into downtown Athens and took over the country. And um, they took over the country for seven years. Um, it was a dictatorship from 67 to 73 um, and to 74, seven years, and it was a brutal one. And um, there was torture, the leftists, uh, people who just wanted their democracy back were arrested, were tortured. Um, you know, Shakespeare was banned. It was a classic censorship, you know, um, regime of repression. And people, you couldn't meet three, you know, more than three or four people couldn't meet. Um, you know, it was... Um, it was a dictatorship and that's where I was growing up and that's where I felt safe ironically. And that's when I was playing in my garden in Greece. But for the average Greek, those years were um, fraught and dangerous. You investigate your father in this book and um, his potential involvement in what you had just described. Uh, but why don't we go back to, I think, you know, the, the, the moment in which, you realized for yourself as a young girl that your dad probably has some kind of odd job or <laughs> an important one. Right. Um, yeah. So of course, you know, in Greece, I was just, I knew nothing and didn't really think of my father's work, but 
um, when we left um, and when I was around 10 and we lived, we were living in Dallas at the time, um, you know, I thought I'm going to ask dad what his job is, you know, so he's on his way to the door. He's leaving for work like he does every morning. By then I know there's some kind of secret that the family holds about my dad and his work. We don't talk about it. It's a thing not to talk about. So it really stands out in its, you know, nebulous absence. And so he's about to leave. He's reaching for the doorknob. And I say, hey, dad, what's your job? And he turns to me and he tells me, um, you know, he says, I'm in the army. And I think to myself, okay, that I can get behind that. The army is good, protects America. Um, I had never seen him in a uniform, curiously enough, but um, that satisfied me. And I, that made sense to me. Um, and then it was maybe a few months later, I overheard him talking on the telephone and he said to someone, he's with the state department. And I thought, okay, nothing has changed in our world. You know, we didn't move. I didn't change schools. All the, everything's the same. Um, but now he has a different job. And then that would be followed by eh, maybe a few months later, some other event. And he would tell someone he's with the Pentagon. And so it became clear that I didn't know what he did and that he, his words were slippery. And there was a way that I couldn't trust him. And I didn't know um, why that was. And how did that affect your feelings as a child when you, you know, I mean, learning, you can't trust your father, what he's saying, what he's telling you. Um, there, there are so many things I could see kind of coming through, uh, being afraid for the family, being afraid for yourself, being afraid for your father, not, or just being disconnected from or whatever. How did you as a 10-year-old and 11-year-old and such deal with that? I think that it, you know, I think it contributed to me feeling like I couldn't trust him. And that was something that lingered and became pervasive. There were moments when he was, you know, I, I, I always saw him as an honest person. And there were moments when I could trust him. But then suddenly, without any announcement or external indicator, he would say he would sound untrustworthy. And um, I think it was confusing. That said, I think it also, um, interestingly, I'm just thinking of it now, I think it also um, kind of motivated me to figure him out. There was, he was a puzzle and things weren't fitting, falling into place. And I became determined um, to try to figure him out and figure out what makes him tick and catch him. You know, in the book, I talk a lot about I was motivated by, you know, to, to for these gotcha moments. Um, and I think I felt those gotcha moments a long time ago when I was 10. You know, I wanted to catch him in something. Um, well, what I, and, and there are you, you do this throughout the book where you. You finally are going to talk to him about something, ask him a really direct question and time after time again, either you kind of shy away from it or you do ask it. He gives you a very brief answer. And I was surprised often you would be writing, you were relieved it didn't go further than that. You're relieved he dropped the subject or, or it kind of came to an end. I didn't know if that was kind of restricted to just that or, as you kind of note numerous times, your family was not, was not good at communicating. <laughs> um, and lots of families aren't, but yours wasn't for, both, for us kind of normal family reasons as well as, hey, dad's a spy. Um, did, 
take us through some of those those moments of when you you did decide to 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 ask a tough question, um, you know, maybe a gotcha type, not a gotcha, but you know, I mean, a, something that really gets to it. Um, and what he told you, did, I mean, did you want to hear the truth or did you want something comforting? You know, I think I wavered all the time um, when I was doing this research. Um, you know, I was always looking at his, looking at, you know, in the index of books from my father's name. Um, I was always afraid, terrified that I would find his name associated with torture. And then I would be relieved when it wasn't. And every day of my, you know, that I, of my research and investigation, it was a roller coaster like that. Um, I would meet with scholars, I would read books, I would look at microfiche. I was always like afraid to find information about him and then relieved when I didn't. Um, so I think that push pull, I was sort of half journalist, half daughter, not wanting to upset, you know, the kind of status quo in our relationship, which was one that didn't talk about things. Um, my, you know, my parents were 50s, 60s people. Um, they didn't talk about feelings. And then, we, as you said, John, we had this overlay of extra reasons why we don't talk about things. Um, you know, I remember when I was in my 30s and I went to visit him. I had just moved out to California to be with Susan. Um, I had a sporadic relationship with my dad, sporadic interactions. So I flew to Texas to where, you know, where he lived. We met at a Mexican restaurant <clears throat> and for some reason, you know, he decided to sort of break the silence and he asked me, is there anything you want to know? And he asked it in that ominous way, like, no, no, no. <laughs> and I knew it was talking about his work and I was not ready for that, but I seized it. And I asked him about Greece because again, by then I had learned of the hand and glove relationship between the CIA and the military and the dictatorship. I was very, you know, uh, decided that the CIA was on the wrong side of that struggle. Um, I was angry about it. Um, and so it was kind of a focal point. And so I asked him, you know, what was the CIA doing in Greece? And he gave me standard answers. And those were the answers he was trained to give. He said, you know, we were investigating, we were, you know, investigating communism. Um, you know, and then I would say, I did push him then. I said, well, didn't we sort of facilitate a dictatorship? And he just said, we have nothing to do with that. And he was a master debater um, in many ways, but he also could just shut down the conversation. And at that point, I hadn't started, started any investigating. I had no information. So he just said, nope, we had nothing to do with that. I said, what about the torture? I've heard of people being dragged to set from their cells and beaten. We had nothing to do with that. And I had nothing to counter at the time, you know, except my feelings and stories I had heard. And, um, but I think swirling in all of that was me feeling hurt that my father wasn't telling me, wasn't acknowledging something to me. And so that was another withholding or another way that we weren't um, communicating. Um, but so that was a time when I was trying to push him. And, and there were other times, you know, in my um, investigation of him, when I finally came clean and said, look, I'm writing this book. Um, I'm, it's about the junta, the Greek junta. You know, I didn't say it's about you, dad. Um, I didn't have the courage for that, but um, I did ask him a lot of questions then. And so, um, you know, I, I sort of pushed when I could. And then sometimes I would lapse into places where I needed to protect myself and not know more. 
Speaking of uh, not communicating much, you do share, you know, your mom's story uh, in the book. And thank you so much for sharing her entire sp- story. And sorry that she passed away from cancer. Um, but there is a part in the book in which you're all in the car and it's, it seems like there's a, a fight going on between your father and her and she calls him out. She is like, you know, you're with the CIA, aren't you? Um, so did she not know either? I mean, I, I don't think you included the, the story of how they even met or maybe I glazed over that. No, you're right. I didn't include that. <clears throat> um, but I do know that my mother always knew. Um, and, um, in a way that was a little unusual. I mean, I think it's not unusual today, but you know, they married in 1960. Um, and I think it was quite common for CIA officers, um, their spouses not to be told. Um, but I know, you know, my father told me that, you know, my mother always knew. And so that conversation in the car that you're talking about was, um, was one of the few times ever that um, we talked about what my dad did. Um, you know, as I said, there was this pervasive culture of he does something we don't talk about and we don't me- mention why we don't talk about it. And so there we are on a Sunday drive. And instead of talking about the pretty houses and the nice lawns like my mother used to do, usually did, she just there was like a, maybe they had a disagreement at the house. Right. And so she just turned to him and she said, tell the girls what you do. And my sister and I were in the back seat, and we were stunned because that was bold. And my father would just grip the wheel and you could see how tense he was. And, um, you know, he just started to talk in circles and saying, well, you know, I, I research things, you know, I, I manage people is one of the things he said. Um, and my mom stuck to it. You know, I think she had had sort of enough of the spy spouse life. And so she turned to me and my sister in the back seat, and she said, girls, do you have any questions for your father and his work managing people? You know, and the sarcasm was there, and I loved the nerve, you know, in her, um, because she was a, brought up in the you know, Texas and the South to be pleasing, very patriarchal culture that she was brought up in, but I think she was moving away from that. And so she invited me and my sister to jump in, and we asked questions, and my dad continued to talk in circles. Um, you know, what kinds of, who do you manage? Oh, just, you know, people, what do they do? You know, gather information, what kind of information, world events. He he was saying nothing. I was giving up as I always did. And, um, and then my mom just said, okay, she turned to him and she just confronted him. And she said, you work for the CIA, don't you? And so she outed him and he just gripped the wheel, didn't, you know, didn't deny it, didn't confirm it which is its own confirmation. And, um, and that was big. And that was when there was a reveal and it was liberating. And it, I felt like maybe I can be a free person. You know, I can, I knew I liked girls by then. Maybe I can be out about that. It just was like a, a feeling, a desire that had some hope. Um, but you know, the next week, month, we, we never went back to that conversation. We never referenced it. And so it just fell back into that place of silence. There's a scene that I'm going to ask you to relate, but uh, involving your your father, your uncle, and something your grandfather did. But after that is taken care of, uh, your uncle, Tom, 
said that neither of them said a word, neither your father nor your uncle, while they took care of it, quote, we had learned by then that talking only made things worse, unquote. And then a little later, he says, we didn't talk about anything. It was an impropriety just to speak. I guess I think he was talking about growing up. Um, so first, actually, could you tell us uh, the story about what your grandfather did to the, the neighbor's animals? Yes. Um, yes, I learned the story when I was about um, 17 and was visiting my uncle um, in Vermont. And, you know, he would, unlike my father, my uncle Tom would share family stories. And he talked about um, a summer vacation when the whole family was driving up to the hill country, going to a cabin how excited he was. He had a whole stack of comics. My father was the same. They were in the back seat. They pulled up to their little cabin um, and suddenly the air in the car shifted. And um, my uncle says they looked out and they saw um, that onto my dad's truck, my, my father, my grandfather's property were all these sheep grazing. And my grandfather threw the car into park, didn't say a word, got out, walked to the back of the car, and my uncle says, everybody knew what was going to happen. Everyone knew in, in the car, knew what he kept in the trunk. My grandfather opened the trunk, got out the rifle, went to the driver's side door, opened the door, propped up the rifle, wordlessly shot every sheep and lamb dead. And then, again, no explanation, he ordered my dad and his younger brother to move all the sheep bodies, to pick up the sheep bodies, warm, limp, carry them and throw them over the fence where they had escaped into the neighbor's property. And my dad and uncle did this without speaking to each other. And that's where my uncle says they learned not to speak about things. They knew it would only make things worse. So they, in, they ate in silence, you know, that, that night at dinner. And, you know, my uncle says that father only told you once. And he had told the neighbors the year before, keep your sheep off my property. Father only told you once. So it was a harsh, harsh world that they grew up in. Um, and, you know, later I asked my father about this event and he had no memory of it. To me, it's a traumatic event. I mean, it's you're carrying little baby lambs. You're wordlessly with your brother fixing the fence, um, chilling. And, um, you know, my dad didn't remember it. And he said, but if Tom said it happened, then it did. And my father had a different read on how to explain that. Um, but that was the kind of thing that I think both boys had to sort of stuff. It's kind of traumatic experience, um, trickled down obviously, you know, to, to you, I think aside from having to move around a lot and not really feeling connected to your dad, not knowing, you know, this other side of him, um, when your mom passes away, your dad had you go back to school. I didn't think that that, you know, that, that was probably the biggest traumatic experience. And uh, you later describe having to unpack a lot of that. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I just, you know, as you say, you know, my mother passed away in, in the hospital um, and I was dropped off by a friend and I, I was there just moments after she passed and my sister was there and my dad was there and I, and I wanted us all to go to the cafeteria and have something to eat or, or be together. And, um, and I think my father thought that it was the right thing for me to go back to school for some reason. Um, he didn't have that sort of emotional IQ to, you know, suggest something else, something that was togetherness. So I was sort of packed off into the car, his colleagues, wife took me back to school and it was some teachers at school. It was some of my, you know, um, friends at this boarding school that I was going to school in Northern Virginia who comforted me. Um, but that was such an emotional, um, disconnect. And I think it, it sort of stalled my grieving, you know, it kind of pushed my grieving down and it just took, um, longer for me to work with a therapist, to, name my grief, to express it, to experience it, because it was sort of like um, time to move on is how it felt. And that was, you know, um, traumatic. Your, your mother and father were very different people. And I'm sure you've thought about this, probably, I don't know, maybe a lot, but I mean, how, how do you think your life might have been different had she not passed in 1981? I mean, do you think that would have changed, you know, your coming out, your your trajectory and both professionally and kind of emotionally. Yes. I mean, I think what you're suggesting is absolutely true. I think that um, she was more open. I mean, she was also not someone who was brought up talking about feelings, but she was emotional. She was a creative person. She was a painter. I watched her. I watched her art um, transform over the years from, you know, traditional still lives to, you know, abstract you know, pouring paint onto canvases. Um, and she, I think she would have been more accepting of my sexuality. Uh, when I came out to my father in a letter, he wasn't accepting. He didn't come to our commitment ceremony. <clears throat> he eventually um, redeemed himself and something shifted for him in his seventies. And he did accept me and met Susan. But, um, you know, I think if my mother had survived, um, you know, they, they may have ended their marriage. Um, I think that there might've been, you know, there was a time when my mother wanted that. Um, and I just, you know, I think I would have had a very different life um, and wouldn't have had to struggle with a parent who was more um, absent and who was more removed um, to kind of complete some of my development, you know. Um, you know, he, he was there and he did, stay in my life. And so I could sort of persevere with him, but it wouldn't have been this kind of struggle. Speaking of coming out and uh, Susan, I think, you know, when you first met her, you described her or she, she described herself as this sort of Republican and you end up not being together right off the bat. And a lot of it had to do with you struggling with um, coming to terms, you know, with yourself, share with us what, that was like, uh, because I think that a lot of times, even if we share our coming out story, we, we might not share that part as far as like how all the trauma affects us. And it, it sometimes, you know, it's hard for us to be who we are. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that when I met Susan as a freshman at Boston University, um, I fell in love with her immediately. And we had this kind of passionate discourse, you know, and arguments and, um, you know, we just kind of like, that's where our passion went to talking. Um, but, um, I think really growing up in the house that I did that had this secrecy, um, and this, it was sort of like a fog, right? What my dad did, why we don't talk about it, you know, it was a kind of fog. It wasn't, and there was that one, you know, gleaming moment when my mom outed my dad and then back to the fog. And so my sexuality became, I think, foggy too. It was something I learned, you know, it's not, it's not okay. It's not good to like girls. Okay. Got it. Um, but you know, what do I do about that? And so I continued to sort of like subversively like girls, but didn't name it, didn't know how to come out of the fog. And I think these two secrets um, or my father's secret kind of bled into um, my own secret. And so coming out, you know, Su Susan knew she was a lesbian in college. Um, and I had that foggy thing where I knew I was that thing, <laughs> but I not completely with clarity. And so it took me more years, you know, to, um, to bring clarity, to work with a therapist, to write, to write in journals and notebooks. Um, you know, it was a kind of surfacing for me. It, it didn't take decades, but it was weird to kind of, you know, other people could tell. Um, and I was just um, still in that kind of hazy in between place. And, um, and so, you know, that was, that was difficult. And, um, you know, and it was hard, a hard earned process to know myself. So CIA spies, family secrets and lesbians, sounds a bit like a late night Cinemax movie, but it's your life. I mean, how, when did in your life, because obviously it's, it's hard to be dealing with just everything that any kid is going through, but when did you realize this life that you had, this, the issues that your dad was dealing with and such, this was not the norm. This was not what every family was dealing with. Other kids your, your age weren't uh, handling some of the same things you were. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Um, when I was maybe in my... When I was in high school, I had a crush on another student who whose parent was also um in the CIA and um and she spoke much more openly about her parent being in the CIA and she said the word CIA like it was just any old word where I was like you know I, I suspected that that I, well, I remember that one time my mom outed my dad was that real um but this this girl who I had a crush on was like yeah 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 that's that's the normal and and that's when I realized okay we're in a unique little club, she and I, CIA parents. However, she's much more relaxed and open about it. And I was much more like, you know, like, like it was still the 1950s, you know, but it was the 80s, you know. And um, so I started to see, you know, that I was more repressed. And, um, you know, and, and then, you know, I came out as queer in my 20s. Um, and that was kind of in ways uh, more direct or easier in a sense ultimately, because you can go to pride and you can go to, you know, women's centers and you can go to support groups and there's nothing for 
um, you're the kid of a spy group. Um, and so that was kind of um, strange. And I would tell people, what was your dad do? And I would tell people he's, you know, works for the government. Um, and I just kept his secret, you know, even when with a friend, well, I wouldn't even have to do that. Um, it was just, you know, automatic. So just, it was just like layers of coming out, layers of secrets, one sitting on top of the other. Um, it was just a, a process to kind of unpack them all. And if I could follow up on your reply to, to what Michelle just asked about coming out and you mentioned kind of your, your, your it was wrong. You, you thought it was wrong. What, what was the basis of that? Was it just kind of sensing that people would disapprove or did you have a religious re objection to it or, or what do you think it was? My religious objection was politics. And I just thought, you know, when I was in my twenties, I met um, some very good friends, Greek Cypriot friends, um, you know, in 1974, the Greek military, the dictatorship, the junta, um, invaded Cyprus. It was its own independent country. Um, they wanted to join it with Greece. As soon as the colonels landed in Cyprus, Turkey counter-invaded and Turkey took over um, the north of the island. And I met these, you know, this couple, we clicked right away. We had Greek, you know, sort of culture in common. And they told me the story. They had lived through it. And they told me what it was like to have their homeland invaded like that and now occupied. And that, um, you know, I was already kind of a lefty. My dad's a conservative. So I was already sort of, you know, in lots of disagreement with American imperialism, Reagan, you know, my father ran the intelligence arm of the invasion of Grenada. That's something that, that I remember knowing vaguely about in college. I was, yeah, I was just a lefty. It was just how I fought. And when I met these Greek Cypriots and they told me their personal story and it was about Greece or it had that connection, I was ashamed. I was angry. Um, you know, it, it all deepened um, that my dad was on the wrong side of things. Uh, the U.S. was on the wrong side of things. I had a I developed a really sort of black and white way of viewing, um, you know, the CIA, U.S. foreign interests, U.S. policy. So, you know that's the energy that I started the whole investigation. I mean, that lasted until I was 20, I mean, 40, um, you know, that point of view, I didn't really look into it. I didn't research it. I didn't know my facts, but I had a point of view, which was very black and white. Yeah. The, uh, CIA and, um, and up to no good, which we'll get back to your perspective and what it might be now a little later. Uh, but speaking of coming out and I don't want to give too much, you know, of the book away for all of you who are tuning in. I couldn't put this book down, by the way, I finished it in um, a couple hours. <laughs> I just, I just had to know like what, what this true story was. And also to John's point, I didn't know about the military coup in Greece. And I was very interested to find out. Um, but my question goes back to your dad's coming out as a CIA agent and finally, the validation's there for you. But the way that I guess he came out, <laughs> I didn't think that, that it was going to be that, right? Like, is, was it the point where he moved to the military base with, with his new wife and then all these officials came out and they tell you exactly who your dad is? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, um, <laughs> so many ironies in this um life that I lived with my father. But um, yeah, I, I found out definitively that he worked for the CIA, not by my, my father at all, but by a stranger. 
So um, I had come back from studying in Greece for a semester in college, trying to get back to my roots. My dad picks me up at the airport, drives me to his new house. Um, and we're driving through the Northern Virginia woods, a little chit chat. And we pull up to a, a, a guard house in the woods. I don't know where we are. Um, he hasn't really told me anything. And the guard asks me to get out of the car, um, has a clipboard in hand and just makes the announcement. This is a CIA base. Everyone who comes to live here for a summer, as I was going to do, has to sign a disclaimer, you know, pledging not to share this information. Um, and it was like, it was like a bell just rang throughout my life. This, this wasn't my mom telling me, although that moment, you know, resonated again, this was a stranger and he just put it right out there. My dad was standing right next to me, kind of looking at the, you know, guard speaking, didn't say anything. Um, and that's really how I, I definitively knew. Um, and it was strange. It felt really liberating again. Um, now I know always when I knew things, when I was told things, when things that became, you know, that's living openly and freely is liberating, right? That's, that's where the reward is. Um, but so I started to feel that again. And then I realized, well, I was supposed to sign this form, <laughs> you know, and the form was like, I won't say this, you know? And I'm like, well, I grew up I'm 20 years. I'm not talking about this. Um, so I can do that easily. Um, in a way, but I was also, you know, bound and determined to break that, <laughs> that pledge. So, you know, in the subsequent years, I, I told people and I did it on purpose and, you know, um, but it was deflating to have to sign this form saying, yeah, I'll keep the secret. So for all of the CIA agents who are watching this and uh, listening to the podcast and all that, uh, for all of the CIA agents who have kids, how what what how could they and how should they tell their kids in ways that are fair to the kids and are are healthy and yet won't end up with them being thrown into jail? Yeah, good question. I don't know um, if there's a specific year that would be good, but I certainly feel like you know you can't tell your school age child they might go you know, go to school and kind of spread it around. And that really could endanger the whole family, certainly, you know, the, the person in the CIA or in the Intel organization, whichever it is. Um, but I feel like, you know, I asked my dad once um, because I published that piece in the LA Times and tells that story um, in, in a way. And, and I said, when were you going to tell us, you know, wh what was your plan? And he just said, you know, I didn't have a plan. It's not like it's easy to know what year um, that you do this. Um, but I think he had just, you know, the, that life of compartmentalized, you know, work and family. And this that was just so deep in him that I think it was hard for him to break, obviously. But I think, you know, when somebody's a teenager, I have friends, I've met friends during this book tour. The wonderful author, Sophia Glock, um, wrote a graphic memoir. Um, and she talks about her experience as a spy kid is her, both her parents were in the CIA. And so, um, you know, her parents did tell her, um, ultimately. And, um, but like me, she found it out in a roundabout way or even more, um, kind of subversive way than I did. Um, so I think CIA parents don't know. And I think sitting down to your teenager and saying, you know, the fact that her her parent did actually tell her directly seemed pretty um, liberating and affirming for her. 
And I just, I had somebody else tell me, and then we all kind of move forward with the assumption and that wasn't the same thing. I think for a lot of us, we don't actually know what the CIA does. I mean, maybe we got a good glimpse of that through Showtime's Homeland with Claire Danes, right? Uh, so, you know, this this is a question in which you, for the longest time, you mentioned it before, you're, investiga- you're investigating your father and his possible involvement in the Greek coup. And, and again, I don't want to, you know, give away all the details because some of you might be sitting there being like, well, so was our father involved? Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like that exercise probably gave you, right, like something you might have been looking for, which is what exactly does my dad do? Yeah, I mean, I think once I decided, um, you know, it's haunted by all these questions, haunted by shame, this, you know, um, this opinion, assumption that he was on the wrong side of things, that he knew about the torture in Greece, that he participated, perhaps he participated in it, you know, not having answers to that, not really looking at that haunted me. And, you know, our relationship wasn't going to progress. Um, and I just had an instinct that I needed to, um, I needed to know. And so I started to really research and read. And as soon as I did that, um, you know, I, everything became less black and white, much more gray, you know, I learned what the CIA really does, especially pre 9-11. I think, you know, it was, you know, I, I was able to meet with scholars. I was able to meet with some of my father's colleagues um, and have conversations with them toward the end of the investigation and really came to the understanding that the CIA is, you know, is an organization of individuals. They don't operate you know, independently, they're following the executive branch. Um, they are following orders. Um, they don't, you know, like in popular, like Homeland, it's like the CIA is its own thing and goes off and invades countries, right? That's really not how it works. Of course, you can always have rogue officers doing their own thing. And that's something that <clears throat> I suspect was happening in Greece um, during the time my father was there. But um, that was, he was a young officer. It was an early field assignment for him. And so I feel like I was really able to come, you know, to to answer some of my own questions um, and to come to a reliable conclusion um, about what he did and didn't do. Um, And that, that freed me. You uh, talk about your feelings about your father's work and your worries and and kind of suppositions and slowly building up an understanding of it. Um, Do you think it bothered him to realize that you were thinking possibly the worst about him and his work? You know, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that. And I think, you know, when I was doing the investigation and writing the book and told him that I was, Um, Although not telling him the full scope of the book, um, I later have found out that he suspected the scope of the book, that he was part of what I was looking at. Um, He he never dissuaded me. He never um, said anything that indicated, you know, that maybe that would bother him. But I think, you know, when the LA Times piece came out, we went back and forth and that was very traumatic for me because the family, a lot of people in my family didn't want that out there. And, 
uh, my father was okay. And then he got cagey about it. And I think looking back, I think that, you know, he was a little hurt. Um, perhaps that I suspected that I needed to verify that he was a moral person or that he was, you know, um, protecting U.S. interests, which was was what motivated him. I think, I think, I think it was something that probably he would have been, you know, had some hurt around. He didn't really express it. Um, but I think, I think that's probably true. And I think it was our distance and my not knowing him and some of this pain that I felt between us that in a way gave me this room to come at him like that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think probably he would have wanted me to believe it was always on the right, believe he was always doing the good, not question him. Secrets. You know, that's, that's part of why <laughs> telling your story matters. Telling all of our stories matters. Um, I want to go back to that LA times article that you mentioned that you wrote, right? Like, you know, being the experiences of being a spy kid, uh, your stepmother, Cindy, definitely did not have a good response to it. Has she shared with you her response to the book? Um, she read it. And then I know your dad didn't get a chance to read the book, you know, but what do you think would have been his response? Um, well, my stepmother, Cindy, definitely read it. She wanted me to sign um, sign the hard copy and, and mail it to her right away. So I did that. Um, I, you know, I, I reviewed carefully um, how I was depicting her and to be as fair as I could. Um, but of course, she was sort of the bad guy in certain moments and that just had to stand. Um, you know, when I, the LA Times article came out, she really had a reaction and she said, you've just signed our death certificate. And then she hung up. And that was the message I got on my voicemail. And that was, you know, really difficult and um, traumatizing for me. Um, but, you know, she read it recently and she said, I have lots of questions and um, thoughts. And but she, she said it was very moving. Well done. And a lot of emojis. <laughs> so I feel really grateful that I think she, you know, she's no longer living my father passed away in 2012. She's sort of not living that pressure cooker of an, an agency wife. And so she can take an exhale. And I think probably um, I said some things in the book that resonated for her about the difficulty of living with secrets and in that life. Um, I think if my father was still around, um, I would have showed him the book before I published it. Um, and so... When that would be its own journey, life journey right there. Um, and I would have, you know, been open to some changes um, if they felt necessary. Um, I would have wanted him to um, to know about it and to, you know, to not be blindsided by it. And that, that's what I did with the LA Times piece, too. I sent it to him beforehand. So um, it would have been a different book, though, probably. That something would have had to be different about it. Would you have pulled any punches? Maybe, you know, maybe if he had said, um, this hurts me, like for the LA Times piece, the original draft I had talked about, um, 
you know, my belief at the time when it came out in 2009 that the CIA was involved in running in, in, in running drugs in Central America, right? You know, funding some of its covert wars, um, you know, um, you know, the crack epidemic is very much connected to CIA, um, some CIA missions. And I said that, and he did tell me then when we were going back and, and forth about the final copy, that hurts. He said, that hurts. And I said, okay, I, I didn't mean you personally. I meant the agency. And um, so I think if he had said some other things like that, this part, that per part hurts, um, I may have changed it because in the writing and the sharing, our relationship reconciled in many ways. And so if I showed it to him and he said things like that again, and I know that we would have had an opportunity then for some more connection and I would have um, chosen to go there. I learned through your memoir just how complex and difficult, you know, the position and the decisions that CIA agents have to make um, at, at, you know, probably even added a, a little bit more compassion on my side because I probably, too, had you know, this negative idea of what CIA agents do because of, right, those missions that you had just brought up. Um, the question is really around what what you think your dad would think of, you know, today's politics. And I know that, you know, several times, even during his retirement, he was called to participate or come out of retirement, actually. What do you think? What do you think your dad would think of what's happening right now in the world, in the United States? Um, <clears throat> I mean, honestly, I think he would be shaking his head. You know, I mean, he had a 32-year career. He, you know, received awards. He considered himself a soldier. He taught, you know, at universities. He did all of these things really in his belief of, um, you know, what the United, the good things that the United States espouses to stand for, democracy, et cetera. Um, we never agreed politically, but he never put down my beliefs. He never told me not to believe them. He set me free to, you know, um, believe what I believed. And I think looking at the landscape now, and as we see, you know, civil servants back in my dad's day, um, you know, followed orders, you get information, you pass it up the chain, you know, you don't withhold because you want your party to look better, or you're not playing political games. He was a nonpartisan, he had his voting record, but he served all the presidents. And he wouldn't have seen it any other way. You don't, you know, you don't, um, um, you know, subvert or withhold information or intelligence or, you know, take uh, classified documents to your home in Florida um, because for whatever reason you want, as a civil servant, you know, you you serve whatever, whoever is, is the president and you don't, you know, you don't say the election was stolen. You don't. I can't see him, you know. Um, I just see him shaking his head and at the erosion of like the civil, there's so many in the civil service who are doing a great job, but there's that erosion of if the Cuban Missile Crisis happened today, you know, and the CIA's intelligence you know, helped prevent that, would that get prevented again today, you know, or would somebody play political games? Wow. Do you think he was proud of the CIA all the way to the end of his life? Oh, Absolutely.
Yeah, he was absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I had arguments with him and I, I think that, I mean, he gave his, he gave his career to it and it was very satisfying for him. It was rewarding, you know, um, he achieved a lot. And I think, I think that the, you know, he taught at university, university. So there was, you know, he would tell stories from the field. And I think he sometimes would tell stories about, you know, CIA missions that, you know, didn't go, um, according to plan or didn't go well. So I, you know, he was a very smart guy. He wasn't going to, but he was a believer. I want to talk a little bit about Susan as her timelines down. And again, thank you so much for this memoir. I could not put it down. So if you don't have your copy, you absolutely need it. It's a great story. Uh, uh, spy kid, queer girl. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love the title. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I want to talk about Susan because I also think that it was a great, you know, there was a great love story in the middle of all of this and, you know, how she walked away from you. Um, and, and it took over a decade before you reconnect again. And so Susan is your comic writer wife that you live happily ever after with in Oakland. Yes. 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 <laughs> and, um, and even people who, you know, know us well, and they were reading the book, sometimes they caught themselves thinking like, oh my God, I hope she and Susan work out. Wait a minute. Spoiler alert. We do. You know, they, even they knew it, you know, um, but um, yeah, we had, we, we like to say we got divorced before we got married because um, <clears throat> we met and I wasn't out yet really to myself and I had all this grief and, and a lot of th things on the way. So, um, so when we, you know, circled back 10 years later, um, you know, and Susan looked me up trying to kind of move on from that ghost that was Leslie in her earlier years and, she was in town for a business trip and, you know, we met and, you know, it was just like, up, oh, click. And, you know, it was the right person at the right time. Um, and we like to joke, you, you can't get over me. Come on, Susan. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, true, true. No, but I have one question about that, though. I mean, if you, you were the ghost and obviously, right, like this, you felt you both felt the same, like this great love of yours you were both each other's great love why was she so harsh to you you know the, that letter that you you wrote to her trying to reconnect you know before that before the tenure that you meet up again and she writes back you know please don't contact me again or something along those lines yeah yeah that happened somewhere in the middle years there um and it was hurtful for me because I had said I was in love with you um, but at the same time, in my letter to her, I was pretty judgmental. Like, I'm sure you're still closeted Republican, you know. Um, so I think she was kind of getting back at me like, you know, I think she was really hurt. I think she was hurt um, by the way our you know relationship broke off back in college. You know, I just was overwhelmed by grief and, and life events. And I just sort of stopped talking to her. You know, and it must have been so confusing. Um, cause we had been talking together every night for hours in the dorms, you know, and then I just kind of wa walked away without even an explanation. Um, cause I just didn't have, you know, the words for it. So, um, so I just think she was pretty hurt and, um, and that's how I see it now. Um, but yeah, I pissed me off and, you know, I lit her, you know, lit her letter on fire and, 
um, I don't need you either. And um, it's a great story now, you know, but, um, you know, she's a fierce person and intense and sort of a, a powerful, um, you know, um, person in her own right. And so that came out in the letter, you know, I'm hurt, you're still in the wrong, um, you know, never contact me again. You mentioned therapists a number of times in the book. How important has therapy been for you in your life? Oh, essential, essential. I mean, I started seeing a therapist in my early 20s in college um, <clears throat> to just start naming feelings, right? Because I had grown up without that preparation in my family. And so, um, you know, I worked with these feminist you know, um, therapists and the Boston area and just learn to, you know, cry. And then what are you feeling? And so for years I would, or for many sessions, I didn't know to how to express what it was I was feeling. Why am I crying? It was really kind of like starting from scratch, you know, um, and learning to name feelings and learning to express them and, and connect feelings to events in my life and understand the, the cause and effect of, of some of what had happened to me. So um, therapists, you know, I have a therapist still, she's sort of my life guide now. It's, it's a different purpose, um, but different in some ways, you know, but I just think they've been, um, you know, just uh, a balm and a healing for me. I feel like at this point in our political history or, or at least American politics, we need balance and um, sound-minded individuals to be in certain positions. I know you just finished this memoir and we're talking about, you know, this memoir, you're doing a big tour, uh, but it's kind of along the lines of what's next. I mean, do you have any aspirations to either get into politics or maybe a position um, with the State Department? Oh, whoa, that is a good one. I have no one suggested that for me. Um, get into politics. I, you know, I have a political group in Oakland that, you know, we meet and do things. Um, um, that's interesting. I haven't considered that. Um, I, I do think about the next thing I might write. Um, but if somebody offers me some crazy, interesting job in the state department, maybe, um, um, I'm, I'm interested in, um, sort of women doing kind of extreme, uh, non-traditional sports. Um, and I've been working on a piece about the Bolivian climbers and, you know, how they climb all these amazing peaks in Bolivia and they do it in tr their traditional um, clothing. And I just, uh, something about women doing these amazing non-traditional kind of sports or activities sort of is calling me. So I don't know, that's, that's something, but um, yeah, I don't know. In in your growing up uh, through the childhood, your youth, um, all the issues you were dealing with, um, did you ever kind of foresee that one day you yourself would be what I think you are now, a role model and a mentor? You work with students, you're you're writing to people, you're communicating and and helping. I think a lot of folks. Did you ever see yourself that way, or do you now see yourself that way? Yeah, I do. I mean, I feel like I've worked. Um, you know, it, starting in my twenties, the whole point of my life was really to recover and to heal. 
and therapists helped me. Writing was always leading me to clearings, always leading me to transformation, always aiding me, um, whether it was crafting this book or whether it was writing privately in my notebooks. So I think I always knew, you know, I wanted to recover from the, the difficulty, from my traumas. And that was always what I set my sights on. And so when I started working with teenagers, I started to see like that was a part of it too, that I was a teen who was hurting. I was a teen who was lost. Um, and and I work with a lot of teenagers who who feel those ways, you know, and so I feel like it's just another way that I get to heal myself in reaching out to, you know, they're not little me's, they're not just like me, but um, I get to, you know, address that part of me still um, by, you know, throwing them, a, you know, a life preserver, by being there for them, by seeing them, by seeing them, really. Leslie, it's, it's been such an honor to have you here in the program and to chat with you this hour long about your amazing book. Again, I'm sure of it, you know, if you're tuning in, you hear my enthusiasm. I could not put this book down. So you need it for yourself if you don't have a copy. Spy Kid, uh, Queer Girl. Um, Leslie, my last question for you is is really around, you know, I, I hear we heard messages of support we talked about, um, you know, sharing your story with other spy kids and, you know, just uh, the importance about how secrets really affect your lives. But maybe leave us, you know, some last or final thoughts for queer kids. Mm, that's a great final kind of comment. I mean, I think that, yeah, I feel like, you know, what I think I alluded to it earlier that living openly and freely is is a reward. And, you know, if, if you can find someone who can hear you and can see you, you know, that campaign that came out not long ago, it, it gets better. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yes, but I feel like, um, you know, find someone in your life who sees you and who recognizes you and who honors you and, and then just keep following those steps and more and more people, because I feel like um, to really you know, to really be who you are and, you know, whether you're non-binary, queer, however you want to term yourself, this is the liberation of being human. And this is, you know, the fruit of it. And, you know, never stop seeking that because once, once I found it, you know, um, it's a whole different world out here when you can, you know, um, be who you are. There, there's nothing like it. John. Um, I, do you want, are you going to, do you have any final words, Michelle? No, I think that was a great place to end our program. Yeah. I was going to say there's, there's, there's not going to be a good topper for that, but <laughs> I didn't want to cut anything off. Well, in that case, thank you to our special guest on today's program, Leslie Absher. Last but not least, thanks to all of you watching and listening online. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.